I thought personally if I got it I'd be fine. Young people and sports people we think we'd be okay but the truth is that it can hit any of us hard like. I hate not being able to play GA, not go out and socialise with my friends. The sacrifices are the only way so we really need to help each other along the way. Behind every case there's a story. Protect yourself and each other. Be antiviral. Hear more at antiviralireland.com Supported by the Government of Ireland. everybody, I'm Chloe Maidley and welcome back to the podcast series three. For those of you that don't know, this is the podcast where I speak to professional athletes, coaches, physique competitors and all experts in the field of health and fitness. I'm really excited that you guys are joining me. So without further ado, here we go. So today's guest is a PT whose name I knew years before I ever ventured into the world of health and fitness. He is one of the OGs in the game, and he leaves a trail of client success stories in his wake. He is an author, a gym owner, a father, and a bit of a pioneer in this industry. Welcome to the podcast, Matt Roberts. Thank you. Very nice to be on and have a chat with you. And um, that's a really nice intro. And I should probably, God, it makes me feel really old with this. I, I was on with your mum and dad on things years ago. And that's the thing. It's going to date me completely. Um, and Were uh, you? Tell me that. I didn't yeah, know that. You know, I would have been on this morning years ago, definitely. When they, I'm sure I was when they were doing it on there and crossed over with them at various points in time on various kind of things on media channels here and there. So, um, yeah, so it's been a long time. And I think that... To be honest with you, it sort of reflects a little bit what the industry's done over a long period. I started my first gym when I was uh, 22 years old. So uh, I was wow. this sort of naive uh, 22-year-old. Uh, I had no money and uh, no uh, sort of means of getting any quickly enough to actually get what I to do. But I had a very strong vision when I was about 15, 16. They want to start uh, what was then actually, I think the world's either first or second personal training gym just didn't exist at that point in time. So um, through a number of different routes and negotiating skills and tactics, I learned very quickly, I, I set about uh, getting one going um, at 22. And at that point in time, the, the personal training, fitness, health world was really in its basic stages. And uh, there were you know, a weird handful of trainers that were out there. Um, it was a strange hybrid. Medics were medics, trainers were trainers, instructors of classes were doing dance classes and so on. Um, and you know, if you roll rapidly forwards now, 25 years later, and uh, there's, you know, it's, a, it's an array of change and difference. And I think one thing that I've always tried to really push hard is that you have to keep on you know, pushing through the, the ways in which the industry has to be pushed and changed, has to be pushed towards you know, being cutting edge on science, cutting edge on delivery of the ways we can provide solutions that are complicated and based on massive research and evidence and data, endless, endless data, but mm. delivered in a way which is super simple because most people don't want to have the time or impetus or, uh, or willpower to read the data, for God's sake. So we've always made sure that we push it out there as being user-friendly, um, very smart, sophisticated, but simple information to hopefully make some differences. And I think that without blowing my own trumpet, I think we've been quite instrumental in the way in which personal training has been allowed to keep on creating and developing itself over that period of time. And it's a phase now where there are probably 50,000 trainers in the UK somewhere there. 
there are there are a number who are good. Um, there are a lot that are really terrible. Yeah, um, that's the same in any industry, of course. But I think that there's good headway being made, and that the passion in the industry, the passion that's there, certainly the top kind of end of it, is really significant and strong. And what's really gratifying is that whether that's us that's done it or not, me done it's not. There's a stronger link between trainers now and, and medics and medicine than there ever has been before. And that's the way it will continue to go. So, yeah, it's been a lot of changes over a quarter of a century of work. Well, you just touched on so many things that I'm going to ask you about, because one of the first questions I have is I'm fascinated to know how you became one of, if not the first PT in the UK to uh, kind of cross over from being a PT into being a, a bit of a household name. Um, as far as I'm aware, you're one of maybe five that have managed to do that. And as far as I'm aware, you're the first that managed to do that. And I was just going to say, can you just tell us about your journey into this from the very beginning all the way to now? How, when, where it happened? My dad was a footballer. So I grew up around professional sport. Um, he was a player for it is peak prime Arsenal, and he uh, captained Wales at various points and had a great career as a player. So I was in and around uh, all of that growing up. So sport was very much an exercise, was much, very much a thing which was the uh, the normal done thing. It, it, was, it was odd to not do it, frankly. I never understood why we wouldn't do it. So myself, my brother, my dad, we were running in the Cheshire Hills when I was, I think, probably no more than six, seven, eight years old. I mean, ridiculous. So it was just inbuilt as being, that's what you do. Um, and then rolling forwards from there, um, I was um, a sprinter, an athlete. Um, I was uh, at, a, at a high level. I loved doing that. But what fascinated me most about uh, athletics is that it's such a technical thing. The biomechanics, the physiology, the performance elements, when we, for me, were the most fascinating parts. I love competing. I love competing. I'm huge competitive as a person in lots of different ways. But actually, it was the kind of what makes you tick stuff that really sort of pushed my buttons. So it sort of started off a fascination um, in exactly that. And uh, I could just see that given that my, my dad, when he was playing football, was always searching for you know, next solutions, next things, ways to train, ways to be guided and advised and treated and helped through injuries and so on and so on, um, I couldn't really find it. And then as an athlete, um, I had coaches who, like in football, actually, coaches who were coach players or, or, or athletes who became coaches without really having ever studied anything. So... There was this lack of information piece at the very high end of performance. And then the experience of going into any gyms at that point in time was they were, they were really basic and um, unsophisticated. They often smelled like an armpit and sounded worse. <laughs> they were just a you know, really bad overall thing. And now if you sort of try to find the ways in which things really should exist, it just made sense that uh, when everyone likes to go and do things which are really quite luxury, why would you have this part of your life, which is so critical, not be luxury, not be interesting, not be a great yeah. space to be within with people who inspire you in a big way? Why do you have to go around to five different places to find people to go and work with when they could be in one place instead? So fortunately, I guess, I just saw a, a very interesting career opportunity and a thing that I was very passionate about. So went about then studying between the UK and, um, and the US. Uh, so I did that and then it was very on it to start my first place up which I did in small up and coming Mayfair uh, in the <laughs> middle of London and um, it's a very very uh, I mean it shouldn't have happened really I mean it's kind of a ridiculous thing when you're tw 21 22 years old uh, but managed to put it together get it open and within months we were I was packed I couldn't get enough uh, new trainers to get started up in time and uh, clients were uh, really kind of screaming to come in so um, it started a real sort of a, a journey of making sure that happened more and more. I think it all comes really from 
a passion into what I do. I'm huge passionate about just performance full stop. I'm fascinated by bodies. Um, I love the psyche of what's involved around what makes people tick, where the buttons are, the triggers are, uh, trying to find those and press those. Um, and I think you have to as well, and this is where I think a lot of trainers fall down, is you have to be genuinely empathetic. Yes. Uh, you have to be someone who really genuinely has the ability to tap into someone for a reason which is purely quite altruistic. Um, so that's, a, that's an inbuilt thing. So it's one of things that I'm fortunate enough to have uh, alongside having a brain which is never fully satisfied and needs to be kind of on the next ways of developing something new to keep me entertained and busy. Um, so all that combined meant that there was a very strong direction of travel. And then, like all these things, if, you, like, if, if you're a, anything, if you're a chef, if you're a designer uh, and you get you're spotted by things in the media, then it starts to escalate and snowball. And uh, that's what it did. And it inevitably then it attracts in names who are celebrity names. Um, and by virtue of that, it's you know how it works. It always expands on from there because yeah. one breeds another, breeds another and so on. So then um, it was really just a case of the my name got picked up into the press constantly. So it becomes then an elevated brand name. But that's no good unless you actually back it up with real stuff. So you can't right. just exist on having a name. You have to be someone who actually really does know what they're doing. Um, so it was really about constantly looking at fresh research, new information, um, really sort of looking at what was going on in research labs and universities in the States um, and experimenting, you know, trying out. I think I've probably tried every form of God knows what exercise and plan and program and diet on on myself and my team gets sort of that on them as well all the time. So we just play with it. We just try it. And I mean, in the last, because things are changing rapidly in the last five years alone, we tried umpteen different things to see, okay, what's the, the net result of this? What's the kernel of the idea that can grow? Um, so that intrigue along with everything else uh, just keeps us constantly renewing what we do. So to this day, that's the case. I love that. So many things that you touched on there I can relate to. First and foremost, you know, I, I agree with you that there are that it's a very saturated industry. We all know there are a hell of a lot of PTs in the UK right now, um, and 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 there beyond. What I find really interesting is that you often will get PTs in my experience that I've worked with or that I know of who are really good at the personal bit of personal training who are really kind of the shoulder to cry and like you, you do kind of take on a bit of a therapist role when you take on one-on-one -on -one clients and they're great at that and then there are pts who are fucking fantastic at the training part of it who you know understand absolutely the exercise science of the body and the biomechanics of the body and absolutely nail it but it is actually quite rare that you get both and i think that is what makes a, a brilliant PT and I wanted to ask you you know how do you what is your criteria when you hire your PTs how do you choose who you want on your team because that's a big responsibility yeah it is I think um over the years I've employed you know hundreds of PTs and uh it's always it's always hard finding the exact right blend and when you find them they're gold so the I mean the key criteria always are just the same as applies to myself is that it has to be someone who is genuinely you know, living and breathing what they say um, you know, I mean, some good examples. I mean, there are some very well-known trainers who actually, uh, you know, will have, they're not, they're not in shape. I mean, I can't understand how someone can be a trainer and not actually be able to walk the walk and talk the talk. I mean, you'll be able to go the whole thing and deliver it 100% on yourself because you're, you're a role model, you're an aspirational role model to the people you're trying to help and, um, uh, and change. So there's that. They've got to give me something which looks like they have real, true, inbuilt passion. There has to be, obviously some really, really good level of ed education. So we're looking at um, interesting forms of either specific degrees around uh, sports science, 
um, or related areas, um, certain qualifications from the UK and the US, which um, stand out. So it's a mixture of those things. And then really they've got to impress in how they deliver in a practical interview and see if they can actually have the ability to deliver the information practically. And for me then, once that's all tick, 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 it's the last phase I get involved in is just, you know, how this person in terms of their overall view of themselves, the world, life, people, how they help, what's the vision, um, and are they interesting? Have they lived a bit of a life, even at a young age? You haven't got to be old to have lived a life. You have a very good, almost old soul and view of things. Um, you haven't got to be, you know, 60 to understand how the world ticks, but you have got to have lived somewhere along the way and have a, an open mind to all of it. So it's really just finding the right personality that fits. And we don't always get it right. I mean, there's always cases, of course, where you wish you'd had some else, but that's, that's life. It's one of those things you learn yeah. off that as well. Uh, so, um, yeah, we've got a phenomenal team. And uh, I think that one thing that this year being an exceptional year has really thrown up is, uh, you know, the gyms have had to be closed on and off over time. We've switched and pivoted into doing you know, digital, virtual uh, uh, delivery along the way. And the guys have really stepped up and done that, focusing on client interaction, not just when they see them, but all of the times, what we always do. Yeah. So you see people who genuinely have a real interest in the client. Um, and the team that we have uh, do that in a big way uh, right now as well. So they're hard to find. So when you get them, we look after them. Well, I mean, that is another thing I'm going to touch on. And I just uh, one other thing you said that I loved is the trial and everything is that I think you learn early on. Like when I got qualified and I started PTing, I learned really early on what did and didn't work. Like it is a crash course. And, and it is, you know, I almost feel bad for like the first kind of six months of clients that I had because it really was a process of trial and error. What works, what doesn't work, what's specific and subjective, um, what's kind of an out and out general rule here. Um, and that crash course in one-on-one PTing, I mean, it made me what I would hope is a great coach now. And it made me be able to have online clients and be able to coach them properly. If I'd have just gone straight into that, I never I would have been a god awful personal trainer. Um, I, I actually wanted to ask you this kind of touches on that, but it's a little bit more abstract. How have you found the landscape around health and fitness has changed over the years, given that you started so young? Part of the the change course has been our access to information. So the ability to actually get um, any data you want, any information you want, is all there. Yeah. So it's it's all yeah. available online. And there's that delivery of um, facilities has improved. I mean, there are. Um, some gym chains that do a really good job now on a mass level. They deliver it, you know, cheap per month for people. Um, so the availability of well set up facilities is greater than ever, and that's a good thing as well. So availability of things of exercise equipment is there for all at you know, God, you know, this is like gym group like what are nineteen ninety nine month. I mean, something crazy. So yeah, um, that's good. That's a good thing. There's um, it's almost no reason for anyone to really uh, have an excuse other than to join somewhere. There's that, um, but I do think there's. The biggest change is this shift towards combining sort of almost medicinal intervention um, with training, health, diet, uh, lifestyle changes. Because ultimately, when you're when you're a trainer, one thing that has to be remembered by trainers and often forgotten is that for 0.123% of your clients, they want to go and perform in sport at a high level um, in, in their own level, what that might be, whether that's on a semi-professional, professional level, that's it. The other 99.78 or 9% of clients uh, would like to live longer, uh, be healthier, probably be a bit leaner um, yeah. and be energized. And that's, that's got to be remembered all the time. So I think that this blend between you know, what a doctor should be saying to you of your cholesterol is high. It used to be, okay, yeah, um, Chloe, your, your cholesterol is high. So 
there you go, your cholesterol's high. Whereas now <laughs> there's a bit more of a shift towards, so you need to do X. Yeah. And the reason why the GPs begin to say that is that the so you need to do X has a route to go down. And that's got to be expanded on more and more. Um, so we've got to look at some of the the biggest costs and killers in the country. I think, you know, diabetes costs around 20 billion a year. So therefore, obesity itself is costing uh, about I think double that overall, if you add it all up. Uh, obesity has some forms of links to cancer. So there's a huge cost to all these things in heart disease. Um, and there needs to therefore be a seamless link between what we see as being medical and what we see as being a healthy intervention. And that's beginning to happen. So I think it's probably the most significant shift. And it's still, still slightly early stages. Diabetes, uh, for me, is the one which is going to be the biggest killer we, we, we know in the next 10, 15 years. Um, it's largely preventable. Um, so therefore, why would you not step in to prevent a $20 billion hole being created yep. and put yep. it somewhere else more useful? So I think there's, uh, that's the biggest shift that's beginning to happen in the industry, but that's a really slow and long process. I'm still slightly uh, aggrieved about the fact that the level of training that's acceptable in the industry is, is quite low. Uh, the, the base point to enter uh, is a fairly low base point. So I think I'd look for some other former regulators to step in and make sure there's a bit more of a sophisticated approach to that, which is not hard now with tech that we have available. Today's podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens, a comprehensive daily nutritional beverage. With so many stresses in life, it can be really difficult to get in enough fruit and veg, aka your micronutrients, that your body really needs. This is where Athletic Greens can come in and help. Their daily all-in-one greens powder is simply added to your day-to-day life with zero fuss. Just one scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food-sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, a multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more, all working together to fill in any nutritional gaps that might be in your diet. It can increase energy, focus, increase digestion, and will support a healthy immune system without the need for you to take multiple supplements or worry too much. Athletic Greens is one formula based on the latest research, investing in absorbable and natural sources of each ingredient and going above and beyond in third-party testing to ensure that their customers receive a high-quality supplement. It is paleo, it's vegan, it's dairy-free and gluten-free, and it contains less than one gram of sugar. And right now, Athletic Greens will support your immune system during the winter months by offering my audience a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit my link today. You'll basically never have to buy vitamin D again. So whether you're looking for performance or health, just cover your bases with Athletic Greens and it will help you achieve it. Simply visit athleticgreens.com forward slash podcast and join health experts, athletes and people around the world who want to make a daily commitment to their health. Again, you simply visit athleticgreens.com forward slash podcast and get your free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs today. You know what's so funny? You are the third highly qualified guest I've had on this podcast who's used the word, well, used the words, we need more regulation. We need more regulation on social media. You know, Pete, we talk about diabetes. I've had dietitians on, you know, talking about the skinny jab. I don't know if you were aware of that hoopla. 
but you know influences promoting medicine that really should be up to doctors to decide who when and where gets it was just absolutely mad um and and was the start of a, of a snowballing petition for more regulation and i completely agree with you actually and i was going to say are there any new trends um kind of taking place which are actually kind of worrying you a bit as a professional i think that there's a danger of uh anyone everyone uh, jumping onto a bandwagon and saying that they are um a trainer a you know a guide in these things and i think that what it does is it just takes the the brand of personal trainer you know down a notch uh, by becoming just it's you know what do you do i'm a trainer well but i am very you know pro people being very uh, engaged with social media to make sure their stories out there and being pushed i just think i wish it was a bit less about the lowest common denominator um yeah. it might as well be put onto only fans frankly it's just it's just <laughs> It's a little bit overbased, and it's fine to use a bit of that. Totally fine to use a bit of that question. No, use that as being an inspiration. Make the rest of what you do become something which is real and informative, and has a purpose and answers the question why. So that's uh, important. But look, the industry is in fundamentally a good position. Obviously, Joe Wicks has done really well this year yeah. and uh, got his brand further up there and out there. And I think that's great. I think it's really great. He's doing phenomenally well at what he does. And honestly, I mean, I don't know him. I don't know what his background qualifications fully are or what his background is. He's a PE teacher at one point, I think. Um, but what's important is that, you know, he's someone who's provided some inspiration. Um, and that alone is enough to actually do it. I, I think it's in a safe way. I think it's perfectly, completely fine. Therefore, it's good. I think it attracts attention to the industry and the cause and I guess that all working and that's all terrific. That's really good. So I think that there's, you know, there's obvious people who are doing some good stuff out there, but they are pretty few and far between. I agree. They are. It's a saturated industry and there's only a few diamonds in the rough. And I, and it's really interesting. I have this conversation with my coaching partner, Emma, a lot. She's again, fully qualified. She actually comes from a science diabetes based background. And we have this conversation a lot uh, with our clients. We do kind of three times a week, live Q and A's with them through this time. And she says, in her opinion, she doesn't think that qualifications are nearly as important as experience. And I always counter it. And I say, no, I think both are equally important. Because when I decided that I I, I basically started uh, Olympic lifting, and I fell in love with it. And I was watching my now ex-boyfriend kind of coach. And I was so seething with career jealousy that I just quit TV, moved back in with my parents and, and started getting qualified. And and I, it never would have occurred to me, never in a million years, that that was a step that I could, that I didn't even have to think of or that I could step over and just start doing it. It just, ne- because I like to think that I'm a responsible, compassionate, empathetic person. You don't just tell somebody to start doing something that you don't have uh, a knowledge of. So I went and I, I did my qualifications. And then, like I just said, the experience and getting it wrong and saying the wrong things and doing my research and learning as I go made me what I hope is a good coach to my clients now. Um, But I think that, yeah, it's really interesting how a lot of people on social media and certainly kind of celebrities seem to have thought that they could start selling plans, training plans and nutrition plans without any qualifications or anything like that. And that is the thing that that really scares me. And one of the questions I had for you that I spoke to my husband, James, about who you know, and he wanted me to ask you this as well, is talk to me about your take on social media and the health and fitness, given that you've watched the whole thing rise. Do you wish you'd had it when you started? Or are you quite glad that you didn't and you made a name in the mainstream media? No, I really, I mean, I'm a sort of, you know, I guess it's a bit more of a, an old school way of thinking. But, um, you know, I've always worked very closely with, uh, the major uh, you know, newspaper magazine groups 
um, and have been very strategic in how we have worked together on creating stories and an output uh, which has a very, very deliberate um, end user, uh, user-friendly um, system for people to use as the reader. Um, so therefore, it becomes a really good piece of content. Like when I, when I do think big things without it, the Telegraph or the Times or one of the Condé Nast titles, it's a huge plan. We, it's like writing a little book. And it's really yeah. going at it in detail and being committed to it. And it's got to be right. And we, we cross-check it with all sorts of things all the time. It's based on oodles of experience. I mean, over the, the last you know, 20 odd years, we've done more than a million hours of training. So as a company, it's a huge amount of, of things you experience. But that changes all the time. Combined with then, you need to be a qualified individual because, uh, going back to that point, it's really about just understanding the, the way in which you have to study the new information coming through and have a good basis in the first place to understand that information coming through. Yeah. So the social media is fine if you're doing that in, in small snippets. It's just small snippet information. The all print media um, served my purpose, continues to serve my purpose well, and it gives me a chance to actually get the information out to a consistent broad audience of, of millions of people that I know is really hand on heart, great content that's big and um, allows people to genuinely get big changes into their regimes without being stuck with um, you know, two paragraphs and a, and a nice photo. I think that um, <laughs> there's, just, there's more to give than that. Um, and yeah. it's not to put it down. You need to have all these forms and mediums to get things out there as being inspiration, to be the drive, to drive one to the other and cross-network it. Um, so do I wish it was there when I was starting off? No, because I used what was there to its maximum now. Do I use it now? Do I use social media now to its maximum? No, because it's not really naturally in my um, yeah. my demographic to use it in quite that way. Um, yeah. Should I? Yeah, probably. Absolutely. We do various things aren't really interesting, good, but it's not the main driver. But also you you have so much credibility and weight behind you know your your name now and and what you do that I actually don't think it's, it's it, I don't actually think it is particularly relevant to somebody like you where somebody who maybe is a a newcomer who wants to show what they can do potentially but I don't I think that that doesn't really apply to you um what would you say are the main goals that people come to you for help with um you know aesthetic performance whatever it is what, what's kind of the most common thing you hear uh, okay, so it's gone through phases and waves over the years. Years ago, it was very much about weight loss. So about you know twenty odd years, weight loss was the number one thing without question. And while that's still an issue to this day, it's much much more now about I want to feel energized, uh, medically healthy and sound and well, and I want to be able to you know expand my yes my lifespan but more importantly my life quality during that lifespan i want to have high quality of life and be super active and feel energized at whatever age and we have clients who are in their 80s who are as males increasing their testosterone by natural processes of doing the the stuff with the resistance training eating in the right ways and doing the best things and sleeping well which is just a remarkable thing given that the average age of living is 72 uh, to be increasing your hormone levels appropriately at that age is terrific so the demand there is much more about that. And the, the longevity play is one that, you know, I'm really uh, passionate about. And um, yeah, well, I think it's a big deal. I think, you know, one of the guys who's probably best at this right now is David Sinclair, um, yeah. who's, you know, kind of the really eminent longevity specialist. Uh, and, you know, his view is that you should be living, we expect to live to about 120 or 30. We'd be playing tennis when we we're in our 80s and 90s. So that quality of life thing, that's what clients are coming in and asking for, for sure. And that's why we do an array of medical service backup work with the clients. It's not just come in, 
here's the gym. We're going to go in there and do some training. <laughs> yeah. The work that we do is so diverse. You know, we blood screen um, every client that comes through the door. Uh, we do Dutch tests. We do stool samples if need be. We do testosterone hormone checking, estrogen checking. Mm-hmm. We do a whole array of things. We've got a physiotherapy department and medics on hand. Um, and we integrate so many different aspects of what's available into every program that we can then start to try and just tick all the boxes of how do we make this person start to function 100% again and maintain longevity, youthfulness. And look, this is partially completely selfish in that I, I'm 47 years old um, and I am uh, the same. My, my goal when I was turning 30 was to be the same in terms of body fat percentage, general abilities on a performance perspective, uh, shape and da, 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 weight. As when I was 20 years old, and I turned 30, it was exactly the same. So I thought, okay, well, if I can do it at 30, and when I get to 40, I need to be the same as I was when I was 30, and therefore 20, got to 40, <laughs> exactly the same. Now I'm you know, heading into my late 40s, and uh, I'm the same now, 47, as I was when I was 20 years old. Um, so it's all about, for me, how can I keep myself in the best possible condition, health, well-being? And that takes input, and it takes really uh, high levels of precision Precision engineering, it's about being really on it with what are the best ways to uh, aid your, importantly, sleep patterns and processes, what are the best supplementation to take, do you change the diet where you need to, do you turn yeah. vegan, do you stay like a carnivore, do you mix the two up, uh, how much do you change your cardiovascular work from doing endurance, doing hit? do you go heavy, and so on. And it's getting all those things all right um, and uh, making the longevity the, the key thing because we have to do that a for ourselves but also uh, for the greater good we can't have people who are 90 years old still alive and incapable of being part of the society so we've got to make sure we all can play the part and be healthy enough to do it I, I could not love that answer anymore if I tried I've been saying this since series one of the podcast obviously because of because of what I do and obviously because I do fitness modeling and stuff as well, the majority of my clients are women and they come to me with aesthetic goals. They want weight loss or more to the point, they want fat loss and increased muscle mass. They don't know that they want the latter two because they call it toning, but that's what they're asking me for, right? So we always start, I, you know, obviously I love what I do and we start there, but my goal is always en route to get them to think far beyond that, right? Because obviously aesthetics are important to everybody and we're all living a lie if we pretend they're not, they are. But there is such a thing as longevity of life. A lot of PTs, especially on social media, seem to just scream and shout about calories and then they, then they stop talking and then that's it. And, you know, they say things like all calories are created equal and I just don't, I, I'm sorry, like, yes, a calorie is a unit of heat energy and we all know that and that's great. But there's so much more to nutrition beyond. I've been in hospital three separate times. One was the big three-week stay in the coma. Number two was the nerve damage diagnosis. Number three was a surprise attack out of nowhere, and I couldn't breathe properly. You know, perfectly healthy 17-year-old, no underlying conditions. It's crazy. Behind every case, there's a story. Protect yourself and each other. Be antiviral. Hear more at antiviralireland.com. Supported by the Government of Ireland. Acast recommends podcasts we love. I'm Sam Bungie, one of the hosts of West Cork, a story about a community on the far south coast of Ireland that became a kind of paradise for people looking for a fresh start. And nobody knew their past. You could be who you wanted to be rather than who you really were. Then one newcomer was murdered and another was suspected of doing it. I see him in the market and really he's always trying to be normal and trying to get people to like him. But we all know, don't we? 
Listen to West Cork now on Acast. Acast powers the world's best podcasts, including the Irish History Podcast, The Two Johnnies, and the one you're listening to right now. Free uh, your longevity and your quality of life. What are some of the kind of top tips and kind of non-negotiable boxes that you would encourage anyone listening to start to, to implement? Okay, so um, there are a few things to try and work on within that. So we have to try and make sure we are doing probably two or three main strands. One is to reduce inflammation. One is to repair DNA. Um, and one is to ensure that we have, um, it's not as basic as calories in, calories out, but a certain degree of control over the area. The first of those in mind, I mean, a really quick hack with the DNA repair um, appears to be that there are um, you know, two really quick ones you can do, actually. One is that we found um, or the, the research seems to show that extreme cold um, and yeah. regular cold definitely repairs DNA because it shocks the body into having to do that in a more rapid way. So the simple way to do that is to have a cold shower for five to six minutes, um, ideally every day, but really as often as you can. And uh, it's pretty hard in the winter, I know, but actually it's a really, really <laughs> useful way to do it quickly and easily. Uh, cryotherapy uh, has a place and um, there are some mixed reports about some of the maybe downsides of cryotherapy being too extreme uh, and causing too much of a, um, a cutting off of blood supply for a short period of time. I think actually it's probably not really true. I think it's broadly fine. The DNA shock is make, makes it worthwhile. Yeah. Is that the anti-inflammatory area is probably one of the most significant. So we need to have bodies that are not exposed to uh, any need to respond in an abnormal hormonal way. One example of that is your cholesterol. Cholesterol is always given, it's a demonized word, and for kind of good reason in how we understand it. Um, but cholesterol is, is a good product. It's a good part of what we create inside our body. And cholesterol uh, is this sort of slightly plasticky substance that goes to certain areas to repair damage. So that cholesterol, you would die, as simple as that. Um, the problem is that if our body's inflamed too much in certain ways and consistently inflamed, there's too much inability to produce and lay down and, and gather more cholesterol more readily. So over a long period of time, there's this increasing of overall um, absorbed and retained cholesterols. So that's the issue with cholesterol, not cholesterol itself. And inflammation is one of the uh, the biggest precursors to making that happen when it gets out of control. So we've got to make sure that we have a body which is less inflamed. That means looking at uh, the ways the ways in which we we eat, what we eat how often we eat. Um, if you want to go really quite extreme into it, you'd probably eat no more than two meals a day at either end of the day and have a big gap in between to give the boy a chance to get a full rest, um, let the gut uh, relax, go to a certain small degree of a starvation mode in, a, in the, the looser sense of the word. And that gives the DNA a bit of a shake up as well. So that, that would be the way you go about it in an extreme way. Now, the problem with that, of course, is if you are you're working out really hard um, and need you know, a lot more energy consumed in the day. Trying to get it in two big hits means they're two <laughs> monsters of meals. I know yeah. your husband and I have sat down in a restaurant before now and had pretty much the entire menu and that kind of yep. works as well. But um, it's, it's something which it's hard to achieve for most people. But you need to think about how much you're straining the gut and the system. And look, I've written it myself over the years where we should be snacking regularly and eating three meals a day and so on. Actually, that's probably not quite right. No. So you have to, again, recognize when you haven't been right and go with the new research and stay with that. And it seems that we shouldn't be snacking. We should probably go for, you know, the meals that we have, well planned and conceived and, and eat those things, but don't keep on picking away because that's where the body keeps on having the ability to 
never fully rest. It never has a chance the gut to rest. It's never been given a chance to get into anything towards controlling blood sugar levels because it's always been given something else to do. Uh, yeah. We've got to make sure that we're trying to reduce uh, particularly the, the fats that are really the dangerous fats inside of your body, the ones that are packed around your internal organs. Um, that if they're going to go down, we've got to make sure blood sugars stay down at a low level. And for lots of people, that's a real issue. So snacking makes that harder. Uh, we take away the things which are the obvious inflamers. So um, yeah. you know, processed foods are just a no. It's as simple as that. They shouldn't be in your diet. Um, you know, excessive amounts of alcohol uh, should not be in your diet. Um, anything which is additional refined sugar added to it should not be in your diet. It's it's be quite so strong and self-critical with it because if we don't, there is a knock-on effect, and we don't feel that yeah. we're in our twenties, thirties, forties. You, you feel when you're fifties and sixties and seventies. That's when it goes slightly wrong. Um, yeah. On the alcohol front, by the way, with that inflammatory thing in mind, because it's quite important from a sleep perspective. If you analyze your your overnight sleep data, your heart rate data, um, and your uh, HRV data in particular, uh, HRV is your uh, your heart rate variability. So this is where it's one piece of data that for those that don't know who are listening, we all know about heart rates these days, but heart, heart rate variability is um, really critical. So it's the amount of gaps between each beat that you have and the flex on those shows that almost flexing your heart almost really it's that variability that flexibility of it it shows a state of relaxation and calm and, and health where it's tight and stiff and doesn't flex much and it's got too much regularity to it in in that sense uh, then it's conditions in which you aren't rested the body's never rested it's never relaxed yeah. and having alcohol is devastating for hrv so the numbers are quite straightforward and I wear a, a device called a WHOOP, W-H-O-O-P. Yeah. I mean, if you have one glass of wine or one drink of some sort, your WHOOP data for your sleep data, the hours that you get, the services overnight that you get, um, nothing changes. All fine. Perfectly okay. Two drinks, and I, this is for anybody, everybody, it comes down. You lose HRV by about 5 6 7 8%. After three drinks, it falls off a cliff. So your heart rate gets just that, it tightens up. It can't quite get that flex and rotation that it needs. And your disturbances in the night go up massively. It drops down by HRV by 30, 40%. Your heart rate goes up by about 10%, 15%. So we know that that for our body clearly isn't a good thing. Now, the problem with that um, is that if you're getting that going on from alcohol, your sleep hasn't been good. It's going to be disturbed. It's going to be shorter. And you aren't getting the body to produce the levels of cortisol it needs to overnight to get recharged the next day. Without that being there, you're going to have a state in which your body is more stressed and therefore inflamed, which has a knock-on effect then of producing other bad hormones, producing more cholesterol laydown, uh, producing hypertension or massive fatigue. So we've got to take away the things from our diets, which we know are going to make us have a, a very erratic way of existing. Um, and that will produce inflammation uh, and that improves then our longevity. We need to ensure that on a very simple level, we are super hydrated. And if you look at, again, blood sugar alone, again, back to it's so important, is that we yeah. know we can bring blood sugar down by just hydrating alone, not because it does anything other than it just gives the liver um, and the pancreas in conjunction a chance to start working really effectively rather than being strained the entire time and not doing the, the counter effects of high sugars that it should be and could be doing in the first place. So those are key things, certainly. And I'd, I'd stress massively that, the sleep that you get is going to define how long you live for. As a guy, the sleep that you get defines how much testosterone that you have. Um, as a female, it could actually define how much your bone density is affected. So we've yes. got to ensure we are really focusing on 
are you getting your minimum minimum of six hours a night are you getting ideally around six and a half to seven and a half somewhere in that zone each person is a bit different if you yeah. say well i don't need much sleep that's true to a degree but it's not five hours so getting that in there is going to help us to live for you know a lot lot longer with that question so those are important i think we need to remember we're designed to move we are designed to yes. consistently move every single day the 10,000 steps thing, it's an arbitrary number, but actually it's pretty important. And it gives you some f- direction of travel, how much you need to be on the move, doing things on a, a number of minutes and hours per day. And it's really p- important that we do. If we move, we live for longer. There's no doubt whatsoever. So those are the easy hacks, definitely. Wow. I mean, I hope everybody listening, you know, this is the kind of information that your PT or your coach should be giving you, make, at least making you think about, even if you decide that you want to chuck it all in the bin. These are really important conversations to have. You know, if your PT is just telling you to do a burpee and not touching on any of this with you, they are doing you a disservice and you need to find someone better. I actually wanted to ask you, Matt, I, it's really interesting that again, with some of the messaging on social media at the moment, it's kind of, I've seen people stand up and say things like, why are you fasting? You don't need to fast. Da, 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 da. And look, my my take on it is this. If you're fasting to kind of, you know, I don't know, for to lose weight or whatever, it's it's unnecessary. You don't need to go to those extremes. But the the effects of fasting on the body are nothing short of phenomenal. And actually, if you're doing it to increase things like uh, your longevity of life, to better things like inflammation, to better things like um, digestion or your body's ability to switch between energy systems, I think it's a fucking fantastic thing for people to implement. What are your views on fasting, whether it's intermittent or uh, prolonged um, or, I don't know, time-restricted feeding? Uh, Well, really important. I think that you know, touching a few points there that are quite important to understand in more detail. I mean, I work with um, a Peter Atia um, in uh, the States. He's uh, a really interesting uh, medical, medical background a guy who's involved very much in programming around uh, you know, diet and exercise these days. And we have clients that we cross over with. And a lot of work that gets done is all about how we integrate fasting, intermittent fasting, um, frequently um, and occasionally do longer fasting if appropriate, um, every quarter. So let's go through what those things actually mean. Um, So the intermittent fasting, there are different ways you can do it. The way that we recommend most frequently, because A, it's quite straightforward to do, and B, it just fits into a a day quite nicely. It's not too long to do fasting for. It's 16-8. So 16-8 is where you eat nothing for 16 hours, and then for the eight hours where you are allowed to eat something, it's around six, 700 calories you consume in that time. mainly protein, um, but a bit of protein and uh, simple carbs mix is totally fine. And that's uh, a great and effective way to, as I said before, give you a chance of resting the gut, bringing down the, the glycogen levels in the system, uh, allowing the inflammatory effects of the rest of your life to uh, get pacified slightly. It's worked phenomenally well with diabetic patients. Yes. Um, it works very well for weight loss because uh, okay, it's, it's partially because it reduces the intake of food for that person. It's only for a day, so it's not that. What it does is it allows you to reset the clock slightly by resting the gut, allows it to digest better um, and improve and create this change in your pancreatic response for insulin production to produce cholesterol, to produce um, glycogen to come down. So it definitely works on that level. It's important as well to, with the right people, uh, use fasting for longer periods occasionally. So a longer fast would be about three days. 
mm-hmm. of eating nothing. Now, that's a really extreme way to go about it. Um, and that would really be done by someone who has to struggle against things like uh, glycogen, uh, blood sugar issues. Outside that, hand on heart, probably not necessary to do for anybody else. So if your goal is weight loss, yeah, okay, there's an answer within that for doing 16 and 8. So that's fine for a group of people. Let's say the person who's well, not for me because I work out really hard and I want to try and get performance to go up. So what, what about me? Does it work at all? We know that if you look at the effects uh, almost counterintuitively of what happens after you finish the 16 hours of fasting, uh, we know from research that was done in the US um, and we used in various reports that we did over here, research over here as well, is that when you finish the fasting for 16 hours and you break the fast and you work out within an hour after you finish and you've broken that fast, in that first hour after you finish, the response by working out heavy, heavy lifting, not heavy cardio, heavy lifting, resistance training, is your human growth hormone response yeah. is massively, significantly higher yeah. uh, than if you uh, hadn't done that or if you'd done a regular workout. So there's points at which you can use it from a performance perspective in the best way. So then becomes then athletic and sports person aid. So there's really good reasons why I can use it in those levels. Um, if you're looking for a way to try and improve longevity, well, there you go. You've already built it in as being this shock to the body of I'm just on the edge of starvation and the body responds to that by regulating itself quite effectively and well. So looking at longevity, weight loss, performance. So you have to really ask the question why you wouldn't do fasting semi-regularly. I think the, the issue really is that people get hungry. Well, yeah, it's, we don't have to eat the entire time. But also, yes. when they say to do this really probably once a week, um, so I probably do, on average, hand on heart, I probably do this maybe once every couple of weeks, mainly by default rather than design. There's always a day where I'm yeah. up early, out doing something. I just don't have time to get around to it. I forget to eat something at lunchtime. And I think, well, I'm already now nine hours in. I might as well just keep on cracking through and do the additional seven hours and do the 16 hours to get through this. And that's my fasting day and then done for the next week or two. And that's mm-hmm. fine. So it hasn't got to be so regimented. It's every Monday or it's every Saturday. You kind of know days just come along here and there where it fits in and um, you can just work with that it's fine it's being conscious and aware of what's going into your mouth how much you are eating um, can you control that on those days Um, so the fasting is really really important and uh, i'd stress that it should be done by pretty much everybody from time to time i love that answer and i too like you are time restricted feeding so like normally i'll do like a 12 12 window that for me is like pretty pretty standard um obviously I just really do that for circadian rhythm benefits to help with the gut. I would say in terms of like intermittent fasting, so like a 24-hour window, I'll do that when I travel. I find it's really helpful when I travel. um, And again, right, benefits my circadian rhythm at 100% and my sleep uh, when I get to where I'm going. Um, Prolonged fasting, I haven't done. And and exactly like you said, I don't think that I would do it unless I had a really really good reason to but I absolutely love that you talk about these things I mean this is real science you know this is this is really things which is going to help people perform recover live longer with a better quality of life and I even love that you you touched on growth hormone which again with all of these methods that kind of shock the body um the the science the data behind the increases in in growth hormone are, are it's astounding um and I agree I don't see why people aren't championing it um more from from a bigger perspective then well it'll help you control your calories that week okay but there's so many more reasons to do it um so what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna do what i do for everyone i've had on the podcast and i'm gonna say firstly matt it has been 
unbelievably educational to have you on and I can't thank you enough I know how busy you are that you gave up an hour of your time to do this and the next thing I will say is I just want to give you the floor for a couple minutes to just say whatever you want to say promote whatever you want to promote um, and then be on your merry way (laughs) well look I mean I I don't tend to really kind of um, uh, commercially promote things too often I think the key thing really my message is always really is much more about uh, yeah, people should be thinking about what it is that they have done to themselves today to make a big difference. And these are small things to make a big difference. So you know, there's lots of information you just had within this podcast. And yeah. I think it's um, it's vital that you sit back at the end of a certain day without getting too over obsessive about it. Just think, did I do some things that I could have done today? Well, today, it's okay. Tomorrow's going to be better. I can do another thing tomorrow. And just be consciously aware of all that we do and I think without going off too much of a tangent about it I think we need to try to think about uh, the ways in which we not just are uh, good to ourselves but actually take a bit of a breath and think about um, how you can help somebody else out at the same time as well I think you're consciously aware of how you need to uh, be just generally good from a, a quite humanistic point of view um, if you do good things good things happen to you I think it's important that you try to just focus on just thinking about someone else's needs rather than just your own um, and lead by an example, whoever you are and what you do. Wherever, if you do one thing and you haven't ever worked out before and you start working out, I guarantee two of your friends will start working out in some way because you've done it. So yeah. I think everyone needs to try to take a little bit of a thought process about the, the ways in which they're perceived. And I would definitely as well, um, if someone is listening who is hearing the idea of exercise but slightly afraid of it, is that no one's watching you. No one's looking yeah. at you in reality. Don't be afraid. It's all about going for steps which you can make for a, a change for yourself. And in doing that, uh, you then just, you know, you have control of yourself. And no matter how much you feel you can't do it, you really can. And everybody definitely, definitely can. Um, and I would advise that people really do listen to you know, shows like this one, um, learn, educate about well health and, and well-being. As I say, health and wealth, actually, wealth, health is the new wealth, frankly. Yes. So it's about making sure that we really are just on our game. Uh, we all have a duty to kind of make sure we stay you know, alive, energized, productive for a long time. So I think that um, rather than promote for me, it's more actually just kind of generally uh, be good to health. ourselves overall. Matt, thank you so much for coming on. And everybody tune in next week for another amazing episode and guest on the podcast. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you. My pleasure. That does it for today's episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. Please remember to hit that subscribe button or that follow link so that you can be notified as soon as new episodes are released. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at MadelyChloe for more health and fitness posts. I thought personally if I got it, I'd be fine. Young people and sports people, we think we'd be okay, but the truth is that it can hit any of us hard. Like, I hate not being able to play GA, not go out and socialise with my friends. The sacrifices are the only way, so we really need to help each other along the way. Behind every case, there's a story. Protect yourself and each other. Be antiviral. Hear more at antiviralireland.com. Supported by the Government of Ireland. Podcast Network.